Hi, I'm Asha Tomlinson. And I'm David Common. And we're hosts of CBC Marketplace. We're award-winning investigative journalists that want to help you avoid clever scams, unsafe products, and sketchy services. Our TV show has been Canada's top investigative consumer watchdog for more than 50 years. But this is our first podcast. CBC Marketplace podcast is available now on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC podcast. Hello, I'm Neil Kirksall. And I'm Chris Howden. This is As It Happens, the podcast edition. Tonight. Intensive care. More than a million Palestinians are being told by Israel to evacuate. We reach a Red Crescent worker who says her staff members have made the excruciating decision to stay with their patients in Gaza City. Advance warning. A spokesperson for Israel's military says the country will do whatever it feels it must do to defend itself. And he says Hamas is to blame for any civilian deaths in Gaza. Making a federal case out of it, Canada's Supreme Court rules Ottawa's environmental impact legislation is largely unconstitutional because it steps on provincial jurisdiction. Bugging out. The owner of a Parisian pest control company says the city is in a panic about the much ballyhooed bedbug infestation but that her people aren't seeing much action between the sheets. Sibling revelry for the Isley brothers' success was all relative, and behind the scenes, none of the brothers did more or looked better doing it than the late Rudolph Isley. And beyond your wildest dream houses, an entire Utah neighborhood leans way into the Halloween spirit and finds that visitors can't get enough of their Barbie-themed yards. As it happens, the Friday edition, radio that doesn't need an excuse to get all dolled up. Israel's military is telling Gazans to do something many say is impossible, and the stakes are life and death. The Israel Defense Forces say about a million people in the Gaza Strip need to leave the northern part of the territory. That includes all of the tightly packed Gaza City. Gaza has been under Israeli bombardment for days, and many believe these new warnings are the prelude to a ground invasion. Nibel Fursach is a spokesperson for the Palestinian Red Crescent, which is coordinating the emergency medical response in Gaza. We reached her in Ramallah. Nebel, how is your staff in Gaza responding to this order from the Israeli military? They were just asking, like, how are we going to escape, how yeah. we could go from Gaza to the to the south and where? Because the, the question is, there's complete destruction of the infrastructure and roads, and there is no um, organization mm-hmm. which is responsible for the evacuation process. No one in Gaza has the capacity to evacuate a million and 200,000 yeah. uh, Palestinians. The, the situation is horrific. It is um, one of the hardest moments for us. That is a description we've heard uh, in conversations throughout this week, Nabal, and you're describing people as they, they try to get out. People in Gaza, Palestinians have told us that those who've tried to leave this week have had to come back because there was nowhere safe to go. But as your staff in Gaza sees all of that unfolding, they have decided to stay. Is that right? Yes. It was one of the hardest moments for us. We had several meetings 
and we took the decision. We can't leave our patients in hospital. We have over around 350 patients in our Al-Quds hospital, which is located in Gaza. We have elderly people. We have people with disabilities. We can't leave them alone and turn our back. We can't also leave hundreds of thousands of Palestinians who are still in there, still in Gaza, still in the north, because simply they don't have the luxury of shoes. They even don't know how to evacuate themselves or even where to be evacuated because there is no safe place in Gaza. Asking people to evacuate themselves with a complete destruction of the infrastructure, complete destruction of the roads, no anyone who's responsible for the evacuation process, and you still bombing areas, and the bombardments is continuous, air strikes is continuous. It's, it's, it's simply ridiculous to ask people to be evacuated under the attack. Our team are exhausted. I just spoke to the manager of EMS. He told me he even as a manager was to engage in transferring people because of this increasing number of um, of casualties and of injuries. Although none of our paramedics left, all of them agreed and said, we want to continue until the last second. We could not leave our people suffering the death alone without even being in their back. So they're staying even if it means risking their own lives. It's a humanity. We are a humanitarian organization. Does humanity mean leaving patients dying and and leave them alone or even risking their lives by transporting them? There is no way to transfer the patients, no way to transfer the elderly, no way to transfer the people with disabilities, and there is no way for us to leave them. Even the hospital, Al-Quds hospital, people, they start seeking a safe place in the hospital. They think it's a safe place. I hope so. Is it possible the places that you're describing, the EMS center, the hospital, could stay safe even if Israeli forces moved in on the area? Could those areas be safe? We have called for an action. We called the international community to pressure Israel to stop this operation because this operation, if it's going to be happened, it's going to be a catastrophe. It's going to be a massacre. It's going to be a killing of hundreds of thousands of Palestinians. We might lose also our colleagues, the teams, the paramedics, because we have witnessing that Israeli occupation forces does not recognize between paramedics and hospitals. They asked everyone, hospitals, even people in shelters to evacuate. But we don't have the luxury of choosing. This is not a matter of choice. It's a matter of we simply can't. We can't leave our patients, our people, turn our back and just go. What did you say to your team, Nabal, when they said we are staying? I was simply speechless. Like it was one of the hardest time today morning when my colleague called me to say goodbye. He told me I'm not going to leave. Even if, if the organization decided to leave, I'm not going to leave. I want to continue providing my services, helping people. 
Now I can't leave the people die alone without any support. Nabella, I'm so sorry. I I want to ask you where you are as well in Ramallah, as we told our, our listeners. That's in the West Bank, just so they can visualize where you are. Yes. Just over 80 kilometers uh, away. Yeah, and, what are you seeing you there know, in terms of the conflict? Like since the beginning of the escalation on Gaza, we also have been witnessing confrontations that is taking place in various Palestinian cities. Today was also one of the toughest days. We have witnessing confrontations all over the West Bank, and this has resulted in the injuries of many Palestinians, and many are were killed during these conf- confrontations. Our challenge was today is to be connected with our colleagues uh, in Gaza. And as I mentioned, it's so much hard for for us that our colleagues have to still surviving and fighting for humanity, providing their humanitarian services, even though of the ongoing danger. We still have a couple of hours ahead. I hope in these hours we hear the, the news of stopping this operation because if this is not going to be stopped would mean absolutely a catastrophic Nabal thank you for your time please stay safe thank you Nabal Farsakh is a spokesperson for the Palestinian Red Crescent we reached her in Ramallah as you've heard the Israel defense forces are calling for civilians in northern Gaza to evacuate their homes and head south ahead of an anticipated ground invasion that order affects more than 1 million men women and children Jonathan Conricus is a spokesperson for the IDF. We reached him in Tel Aviv. Lieutenant Colonel, we're hearing about localized raids in Gaza. Has the ground invasion begun? No, it has not. And we explained what these activities were. See, we are trying to solve a 1,300-piece puzzle. And I'm referring to the amount of Israeli casualties, people that were killed in this attack by Hamas. Many have been accounted for, more than a thousand have been accounted for, but we still have questions about missing persons, mm-hmm. dead persons, and people that are presumed to be held hostage. So we, we did uh, collect valuable intelligence. It is still a very dynamic and complex picture, but these operations on the ground uh, added some information. Um, it is a national effort to Uh, collect as much as possible of relevant intelligence to understand where our men, women and children and toddlers are being held in Gaza, where Hamas is holding them, and to, as soon as possible, be able to get them out. The other very important part of this puzzle, that's the word you use, is, of course, the Palestinians, more than a million civilians. Where do you expect them to go when the IDF says they should leave? Yeah, so we're trying to do the right thing here. We're at war. We don't want the civilians to be hurt. And uh, we are telling them, go south of the Gaza River, and there you will be safer than you are in Gaza City. Uh, We expect them to leave. We expect them to totally disregard what Hamas is telling them. Hamas is telling their own civilians, don't leave. And they're uh, uh, knowingly jeopardizing them exactly in order to cause the very same situation that so many people around the world are concerned with, which is a humanitarian catastrophe. That's what Hamas wants. Mm -hmm. We are telling them, leave, 
so that you can but, enhance the chances but as of you your know, security. But as you well know, sir, the United Nations, others in the international community, the WHO, are all very concerned about the potential for a humanitarian catastrophe, which they feel is already unfolding in Gaza right now. They, the United Nations has said, quote, it is impossible for such a movement to take place without devastating humanitarian consequences. They're saying not difficult, impossible. So yes. what will the IDF do if people cannot get out? Are you going to give them more time? I think that that claim uh, will be proven wrong. And uh, I think that the consequences of civilians staying, despite our warning and despite our best efforts for their safety, if they stay, the consequences will be worse. And that is definitely not what we want. And I don't think that anybody around the world, except for uh, the brutal Hamas terrorists, want it. And perhaps Israel bashers around the world would but, be happy to see it. But people, but, but the United Nations and, and Red Crescent are certainly not Israel bashers. But we're hearing from people, sir. In fact, I just spoke with a spokesperson for the Palestinian Red Crescent, Nabal Farsakh, and, and she has colleagues yeah. in medical yeah. facilities in the evacuation zone. They're they're there. They're yeah. in the evacuation zone that the IDF has outlined. But they have no choice, they say, but to stay because for them to leave means their patients would die. And I'm sure you can appreciate that people in the medical field cannot leave patients who are struggling behind. So what do you say to them? They know they've had to say goodbye to their to their colleagues in case they get killed because they're doing their jobs. Uh, saying goodbye could be a very temporary situation. What isn't temporary is 1,300 dead Israelis. They are not temporary. Uh, more than 100 Israelis have been taken hostage by this brutal uh, terrorist organization. We are still trying to do the right thing. We are still telling Gazan civilians, leave. In, despite the fact that Hamas is telling them not to leave. If they stay, they are endangering their own lives. Will the and IDF I spare hospitals, like say, though? We continue to abide by the law of armed conflict, and we continue to map and monitor uh, what we call sensitive humanitarian facilities, and we will definitely not actively target them. Despite the fact, by the way, that Hamas constantly, systematically abuses these locations for their combat activities. They fire from near, around, or under these facilities, including hospitals. And we've seen that through all of our conflicts with Hamas, they constantly abuse these locations, yet we persist in not striking these because uh, we don't want to kill civilians. And what I want to say to these medical personnel, I understand the extreme complexity of the situation, but the responsibility for this terrible situation lies with Hamas. And I, and I think I want to be clear, Lieutenant Colonel, as we're speaking, going back to what you said about the horrors that have been carried out and, and the horrors that people are still experiencing, uh, that Israelis are still experiencing. I just want to make it very clear. No question I ask is to deny what has happened. But when we talk about pe- civilians dying, uh, as you know, the U.N. is reporting uh, at least 11 deaths of its workers. Uh, roughly half the civilians in Gaza are children, as you know, as well. So is there a line for you? There's no line and there's no quantities. We don't deal in how many uh, civilians have been killed. And the only thing that we are focusing on is to dismantle Hamas and its military capabilities. We are doing so while trying our best to minimize civilian, civilian casualties. That's why we are advertising in advance our military operations so that they know, are aware, and have ample time to do something that will enhance 
enhance their security. It's not a perfect situation. It's a horrible situation for everybody. But we are doing our best in a horrible situation to minimize the risk for civilians. Mm -hmm. And I think that should be acknowledged, not criticized, but acknowledged. We are at war and we were attacked. That's how they started. And we are now at war with Hamas. And until Hamas is dismantled, we will not stop. We will try not to kill civilians. And out of their own safety, they should evacuate. There's, when you, uh, to get back to something you said just a moment ago, Lieutenant Colonel, um, when you say there's no line, uh, yesterday when you, sp- you spoke to our CBC new- News colleagues in another interview, you said that, you know, your goal, as you've said here, is to destroy Hamas and that, quote, everything else is secondary. So when you say that, does that include the lives of Israeli hostages? So you're touching upon the most complex issue for the state of Israel as we speak. It is, I think, the the, the most cruel dilemma that any military has ever faced, definitely in the, the last 50 years. The aim is to dismantle Hamas and its military capabilities. That is what we're focusing on. Parallel to that, we are doing everything we can to get information and to Uh, come up with a plan and execute a plan in order to get these people back into Israel. I spoke uh, yesterday with Jan Egeland, who you may know from the Norwegian uh, Refugee Council, and he said that Israel risks losing the moral high ground if it continues uh, to put the lives of civilians in Gaza, Palestinian civilians in Gaza, at risk. Is that a concern for you? I think that it's a very cynical way of trying to undermine uh, our activities. What we are doing is out of concern for civilians. We are telling them to leave. If we weren't concerned and if we wanted to, God forbid, inflict damage to civilians, then we wouldn't tell them to leave. We would commence significant military operations in Gaza City while they're there. But they're saying it's impossible to leave safely. No, it's it's not. It's not. It is possible. And you will see it happen. It's already happening. It is possible. It is possible and it will happen because people will have the sense. But will they have food, that, electricity, water and medicine when they do leave? They should ask Hamas that. They should ask. The, the, the but you have the power that, to create humanitarian corridors. And that's what Mr. Egeland was calling for. He's saying that Israel needs to fight terror and terrorists while still protecting the lives of civilians as we are doing. We are telling them to leave. Reality on the ground provides us with limited options to minimize the effect on civilians. The best option is not to be in the area where there's the most intense fighting. It's really basic uh, logic. We're, We're at war. We're fighting against an enemy that embeds himself within the civilian population and uses civilian buildings and infrastructure, which is a war crime. And we're telling civilians go away from there, how can that be anything but the highest moral ground when we are trying to defend ourselves against 5,000 rockets that have been fired and 1,300 Israelis that have been butchered? Lieutenant Colonel, I appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you very much. Jonathan Konrikus is a lieutenant colonel in the reserves and international spokesperson for the Israel Defense Forces. He's in Tel Aviv.
Ottawa called it the Impact Assessment Act, or Bill C-69. Former Alberta Premier Jason Kenney and other critics called it the No More Pipelines Act. Now the Supreme Court of Canada has deemed that controversial federal legislation largely unconstitutional. The act allowed the federal government to review the environmental impacts of certain infrastructure projects, including pipelines and coal mines. Today, the court ruled that the legislation infringed on provincial jurisdiction. This afternoon, Alberta Premier Danielle Smith reacted to the ruling. If you believe in fairness, common sense, and the sanctity of the Canadian Constitution, today is a great day. We are extremely pleased with the Supreme Court of Canada's decision confirming the unconstitutionality of the federal government's destructive Impact Assessment Act. This legislation, also known as the No More Pipelines Act, but I've been calling it the Don't Build Anything Anywhere Act, is an existential threat to Alberta's economy. It is already responsible for the loss of tens of billions of dollars in investment and thousands of jobs across the country in many economic sectors. Today's ruling represents an opportunity for all provinces to stop that bleeding, rebuild investor confidence, and attract those jobs back into our economies. And today, I am pleased to see, uh, pleased to say that Alberta is once again open for business. David Wright was the co-counsel for interveners in this case who were in favor of the act. He's an associate professor in the Faculty of Law at the University of Calgary. We reached him in St. Margaret's Bay, Nova Scotia. David, Daniel Smith certainly sounds happy with this decision. Are you? Uh, mixed feelings. Uh, the decision did come as a surprise. Most of us who follow this area of law and policy thought that existing precedent and constitutional law doctrine was really on the side of the federal government. Um, but I am happy that we have fresh legal clarity. So while this really is um, a pretty clear loss for this federal government, everyone will benefit from the fresh legal clarity that the courts provided today. How? Well, the court was very clear in saying that there is very strong constitutional basis for the federal government or any federal government to enact an environmental assessment law, but that this one went too far. And so what the the court is saying to the government is, look, you've got these pretty clear areas of federal jurisdiction. You need to go back to the drawing board and fix this legislation or come up with new legislation that more closely aligns with and is more clearly tied to those areas of federal jurisdiction. The environment minister has responded saying they accept the decision, obviously, but will work to improve the legislation uh, through parliament. What would improvements look like? That's a great question. In plain terms, those improvements would look like a very clear provisions in the Act that tie all the factors to be considered and tie the decision-making directly back to areas of federal jurisdiction. And so while currently there are notions of sustainability, concerns about climate change written into the Act, those may actually still live on in the next version, but they need to be more clearly and explicitly tied back to potential effects on areas of federal jurisdiction. You heard Premier Smith there. Um, the Canadian Association of Petroleum Producers says that, quote, provinces are best positioned to review and regulate resource development projects within their own borders. So this has been about jurisdiction for them and control over these kinds of decisions. But the dissenting justices in this ruling also said in part, quote, intergovernmental cooperation is essential here. But Given what we've just heard and, and how the Association of Petroleum Producers, what they've said so far, how they're feeling, is that kind of cooperation actually going to happen? Ooh, that's a great question. Uh, you know, most signs point to the answer being no in the current political climate. 
the Constitution and the legal landscape provide nearly limitless room for cooperation. But then it comes down to politics, and the current political dynamic is a challenging one. So even the majority in this context did say, essentially, there's there's lots of room for cooperation. That's what we would expect to happen, except it's quintessentially easier said than done. Hopefully, folks can come to the table with a cooperative mindset and try to figure out where the balance lies best in terms of uh, balancing federal and provincial jurisdiction and the overlapping jurisdiction that exists. As co-counsel for the intervener group, the Canadian Association of Physicians for the Environment, what was the case you made to the court, just so our listeners have a, have a glimpse into what was going on there? We were the only um, intervener that focused primarily on climate change. And what we submitted was that greenhouse gas emissions and climate change impacts and considerations are within federal jurisdiction when it comes to impact assessment. In other words, the federal government does have the constitutional authority to take into account greenhouse gas emissions and to factor that into final decision making. You said this this decision surprised you and others. Why do you think the court went the way that it did? I think that they became quite concerned with just how broadly the act was framed and how it wasn't clear enough in some of the key junctures in the act. So there's sort of several sub-decisions that are set out in the act that tried to tie the entire regime back to potential impacts on areas of federal jurisdiction, but that wasn't clear enough in the act and the way those, it gets into the weeds a bit, but the way those provisions were crafted just didn't have as clear of a tie as possible. So that's really the starting point for the amendments that we're likely to see come from the federal government Mm -hmm. in weeks and months ahead. What should Canadians who are concerned about the environment and these kinds of projects, and they want, you know, uh, oversight on them uh, and checks and balances on them, what would you say to them about what, how they can, how they can process all of this in their minds today? So it's a step backwards. This really does weaken a key tool in the federal toolbox of environmental law and environmental protection measures. Um, so I would also say to, to those types of folks that all hope is not lost if you're in favor of environmental protection and that um, there's still lots of room for the federal government to come back with a new act, but it, it will not be as ambitious as this one. And so for provinces, for example, that are c- concerned about climate change impacts and have, you know bear the burdens of pollution of other provinces, this is a challenging day because it's really the, only the federal government that can take that into account. So by shifting most of the decision-making toward the provinces, there is a risk that those types of transboundary harms fall through the gaps of any regime in the future. When Premier Smith says, you know, it's it, the province is now open again for business, was it really ever closed? <laughs> There's certainly been a lot of colorful political language around this. And, you know, I've actually written articles to say that the new act is actually not as... Uh, problematic for project proponents as as it's portrayed to be. In fact, it, it provides a legislative basis to really showcase how sustainable and how beneficial some projects can be. So I'm not so sure it was ever closed for business. Having said that, there were letters sent by the federal minister to some project proponents saying, we are not going to approve this project or we're unlikely to approve this project given some of the pollution dimensions. And the basis for those letters is now in question. Indeed, the court picked up on those. And so it's, it, it was clear that it was starting to have an impact in the form of fettering some types of high emissions projects in, in particular. How are you going to teach this case to your students? <laughs> well, with much uh, 
with much excitement, I guess. I mean, even though the outcome isn't what many of us expected, it's always exciting when we get uh, fresh clarity in the law, and I expect they're going to be excited to digest it all together. But the short message will be, look, the landscape of federal jurisdiction in this area has just changed significantly. Now let's get to work and see how, how everyone should proceed. Thanks for this, David. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. That was University of Calgary law professor David Wright. We reached him in St. Margaret's Bay, Nova Scotia. Hello, I'm Jess Milton. For 15 years, I produced The Vinyl Cafe with the late, great Stuart McLean. Every week, more than 2 million people tuned in to hear funny, fictional, feel-good stories about Dave and his family. We're excited to welcome you back to the warm and welcoming world of The Vinyl Cafe with our new podcast, Backstage at The Vinyl Cafe. Each week, we'll share two hilarious stories by Stuart, and for the first time ever, I'll tell you what it was like behind the scenes. Subscribe for free wherever you get your podcasts. Two weeks ago, when celebrities and models converged on Paris for Fashion Week, bedbugs stole the show. Pictures of the tiny pests on public transit, in movie theaters, and at the Charles de Gaulle airport infested social media. And coverage of what appeared to be a major bedbug crisis in the City of Light invaded every corner of the internet. But one of the many problems with bedbugs is that once you're thinking about bedbugs, you see bedbugs everywhere. Julie Gaultier is the founder of Dog Scan, a bed bug detection company in Paris. That's where we reached her. Julie, how many calls are you getting every day now uh, with people asking, you know, you to check out whether they have bed bugs or not? Well, actually, I have so many calls that I've stopped counting oh. and I've actually had to turn off my phone. Um, so now people who call... Um, go directly to voicemail, which asks them to send an email. Mm -hmm. And I religiously do all my emails every day. How many? uh, I get like around 40 emails a day. And before you cut off, before you, you know, shut off the phone to send people to email, how many, how many times was your phone ringing? Uh, Yeah, the phone rings between, yeah, around 60 times a day. That would, that would get... (laughs) That but that's would be not taxing. every day. No, no, that's it's not, just... It's not every day. It's no. only when, you know, when there's a big article coming out. Usually we have around 10 calls a day. Um, so it's much more, but it's just a phase. It's not going to last. And it, <laughs> it wasn't like that before. In this latest phase, as you describe it, how many of the people who, who've called or, or emailed, how many of them actually have bed bugs? Very few, actually. Most people... Um, read an article or they see something on TV about um, bed bugs and they find a bug in their house and they freak out. They think it's a bed bug and they call, they want someone on the phone right away. They need to be reassured. So on the phone, it's impossible to actually really reassure someone. So that's why I only function my email because people can just send me their pictures and I, most most people send me pictures of random bugs and I can just reassure them and tell them, no, this is not a bed bug. So bed bugs are an issue in Paris. 
uh, yeah. just in general. So when you do go to someone's home, what do you and, and you know the key member, Kiba, the dog? What do you yeah. do? What do you do? Well, when when someone calls me, it's because they're worried about having bugs, so they don't know if they have bugs, or because they've been through treatment and they want to check that they don't have. Um, any bugs left. So when I arrive, I usually sit down, we go through a lot of questions, a checklist, they tell me their story. And then I ask my dog to work in the in the home and the dog inspects the house. If he finds bugs, he'll sit and he'll signal by sitting and, and not moving. And I'll, I'll know that there are bugs there. Given what has happened over the last couple of weeks, um, you know, as you know, Paris's deputy mayor does think there there is a problem. He's asked the government to take action. He calls it a scourge of bed bugs and wants to to have it taken care of before the Olympics. Uh, last week, a school had an official infestation. Teachers were refusing to work. But from where you stand, uh, is this is this a real and serious problem in Paris right now? Is it worse than normal? It's. It's not worse than normal, and it's not worse in Paris than anywhere else. Um, what happens is that with COVID, there was a decrease in bed bugs because no one was traveling anymore. So the there were less bed bugs, and now people have started traveling again. So we're finally catching up with what it was before COVID. Because you're getting all these emails and calls, and even I, I expect when you inspect a home. Uh, and you say there's none here, you know, once people have seen a picture and once there's that perception that they're out there, how do you change people's minds and convince them that they are That aren't? they don't have to. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, it's really hard because when, when people really are scared, um, it takes quite a while to reassure them. So sometimes I can stay at someone's home for over an hour explaining and answering questions and the way to reassure people is basically just to educate them mm-hmm. and really explain what a bed bug is, and that empowers them. If they understand the insects and they understand what to do and how to protect themselves, it really helps because they feel empowered. They feel like they they can take action to protect themselves. So what is that advice? What would you t- say to our listeners who, who are going to well, investigate? <laughs> well, I mean, if, if, if you go stay at a hotel, you know, don't put your suitcases near the bed. If you can, try and put your things in the bathroom because usually the bed bugs do not stay in bathrooms. And, you know, just be extra careful. And if you do think you you had bed bugs during a vacation you can just come home and treat your things you can wash everything at 60 degrees 60 degrees celsius um you can put things in your dryer and these are all standard procedures that are on on canadian official websites on now the french official websites (laughs) and so i mean this is information that is out there now so that's a good thing you're right about knowledge is power, certainly, in, in all situations, particularly this one in this context. Yes. <laughs> Are there telltale signs people should be looking for, whether it's in a home, you know, maybe they're staying at an Airbnb, or maybe they're going to a hotel in Paris or anywhere? Are there things they should look out for right away? Yes. I, I think when you when you go to a hotel or an Airbnb, it is a good idea to check the mattress um, for for 
black dots, which would be bedbug feces. And it's almost Lovely. as if you, yeah, it, it's like, it's like t- taking um, black ink and putting dots. So it's not something you can scratch or that can come off by, you know, uh, sweeping or vacuuming. It's really a liquid black dot that was, that's put onto uh, uh, the mattress. And if you see that, around the mattress mm-hmm. and then you should be a little worried and yeah. you know <laughs> run run <laughs> <laughs> but no don't panic but run <laughs> <laughs> get out <laughs> julie thank you thank you julie galtier is the founder of the bedbug detection company dog scan we reached her in paris If seeing the Barbie movie at the theater wasn't immersive enough for you, you might want to take a trip to a small lake island community not far from Salt Lake City, Utah. On that island, Barbie Land has come to life, just in time for Halloween. And if you've seen the movie, you'll recognize some of the houses. There's Beach Barbie's Place, Weird Barbie's Weird Place, and even the Mojo Dojo Casa House. President Barbie and Disco Ken, also known as Justin Gallegos and Liz Turan Gallegos, are the owners of their own Barbie dream house. We reach them in Barbie Land, also known as Daybreak, Utah. Liz, Justin, is everyone in the neighborhood calling you Ken and Barbie now? <laughs> we're trying to get them to. <laughs> I mean, definitely when we're when we're in costume, you'll hear your name. You'll hear Ken. Yeah. Which Ken are you? <laughs> I am Disco Party Ken. Okay, and which Barbie are you, Liz? Which one do you lean towards? I am President Barbie. Nice. Of course. Well done, well done. I've had an opportunity to look at these pictures. It's pretty great. You guys have gone all in in Daybreak. But Justin, describe for our listeners the Barbie Dream House. The Barbie Dream House is just, it's a smattering of hot pink. The, the pillars to our home are hot pink and a full Barbie closet from the movie that is, <laughs> lit with pink lights and you can see inside and there's like dresses from like the original Barbie era and shoes and there's a stand next to it with sunglasses and jewelry and like our little girl just goes out there every day and just dances on the porch for all the people that come by and it's just like her dream. And Liz, if I were to walk down the street, what else would I see? Uh, You would see lots of different themed Barbies. So we have a Mojo Dojo Ken house for those that have seen the movie. We have like Disco Barbie or Pool Party Barbie or Beach Barbie or Barbie Barn. We have Barbie's Pet Shop. So it's really fun. It's cohesive amounts of pink, but then also a lot of individual personalities and perspectives on Barbie. And it's fun. So about 20 of these Barbie-themed houses uh, in your neighborhood for for this Halloween. Justin, how did it all get started? Whose idea was it? Oh, it was the Barbies, of course. They, <laughs> um, they all saw the movie together, and the very next day, less than 24 hours later, they took all the husbands. We all wanted to see it. <laughs> Everyone was on board. How long did it take, Liz, to, to get it all together? Your house, at least. Oh, we talked about it near the right after we saw the movie, but then we didn't really do anything for a month or so. And it was actually our neighbor's daughter's idea, just mm-hmm. to give her full credit. But eventually, early September, we were like, "Okay, Halloween's coming up. If we really want to do this and do it right, we got to hurry and put this together." So it was a lot of collaboration and discussion. So I'd say all together, from start to finish, probably took about two to three weeks of buying and building, mm-hmm. and then we all kind of put it up 
together in a, in a weekend or two. It's kind of perfect that a neighbor's daughter came up with the idea, given the movie. Exactly. Yeah, it was it was really sweet. And uh, our neighbor Jamie's daughter, Miley, was like, well, we should decorate our houses, too. And since we're all neighbors and so close to each other, we were like, Miley, that's a brilliant idea. <sighs> well, your neighborhood does sound like a like a pretty fun place. But beyond you know, the fun and the color and the pink uh, and the dream house, et cetera. Uh, you, you know, the film has a feminist message, obviously. So do you have decorations that reflect that as well in your capacity, of course, as, as President Barbie? I'm, I'm sure this was a focus, <laughs> focus for you. You know, I personally don't, but a couple of our neighbors <laughs> do. So our, our, our next door neighbor is the Barbie graveyard, and she has a tombstone that says, rest in peace, patriarchy, which is, <laughs> so appreciated and everybody loves. But it's funny people say that because while I feel it was a very pro-feminist message, I also felt like it was a very like positive about both genders. Cans are knuff and Barbie can be anything. <laughs> That's what I took away. It's true. No, you're absolutely you're absolutely right. Uh, and that was that was one of the beautiful things about the movie. I think that resonated with a lot of people too and, and made it yeah. more than more than just a fun night out. Justin, you guys have done this kind of thing before. So, I mean, where does this stack up in terms of the other themes you guys have rolled out? Is this is this at the top? Oh, man. I mean, last year, like, our neighborhood is situated on a little island in, in this neighborhood of Daybreak. They built a lake around this. And last year, Halloween is so crazy here. I mean, you couldn't get off the bridge. And so, I mean, our decorations were just Halloween themed last year. This year, it's, it, you know, there's been thousands of people already, so we don't even know what Halloween night's going to be like, but we're stocking up as much candy as possible and um, just just getting prepared for a, a really fun chaotic night yeah how, how many people are just driving by they they drive and they park on the island and mm-hmm. then it's just people get out and they just walk down the sidewalk of homes and on either side is a barbie barbie themed home so it's it's pretty perfect someone sent us a picture from an airplane you can actually see it at night we've come on lined up so much hot pink we've strung lights across from house to house every porch has lights it's pretty wild so what were the some of the other themes you've done over the years Oh, nothing like this. I mean, just, um, I mean, last year Liz had this great idea. We had like floating candles hanging from um, our porch and uh, we'll put props out and stuff, but we've never, never done, you know, a full on theme, let alone like one that was combined with neighbors and stuff. So this is, we just blew it out of the water this year and we're just going to figure out how to top it next year. Well, I was going to say, Liz, the stakes are pretty high now. That's a lot of <laughs> pressure. Well, it is funny because, and Justin mentioned, like, our neighborhood does love Halloween. There is a Harry Potter house, an Encanto house. Down the street, there's a Stranger Things house. So Halloween and Daybreak specifically has always been a big deal, but it's usually these independent houses. And I think what's resonated with a lot of people is, like, wow, how did you wrangle all your neighbors together? And I, so I do think what at least our street feels very special and lucky to have the close relationship with each other. Yeah that we wanted to do this all together and that everyone was on board. There was no, like, really <laughs> bullying anyone into it or anything. But, <laughs> there was no Oppenheimer um, camp that was, like, yes, splitting well, the street down the middle? <laughs> One person thought about doing Barbenheimer, but we were like, you know, just keep it, keep it Barbie, please. Um, no, but it was, it's been so great to have everyone on the same page. And, and then it just exploded and we're like, okay, well, now we have to do it again next year and probably even bigger. So, yeah, the pressure is definitely on. It's not, it's not a bad thing for your neighborhood to be known for, for this to put it on the map, I guess. <laughs> yeah, I guess not. I just barely ran into someone who said, oh, my gosh, you live in Barbie land? My neighbor <laughs> says she can't ever get to her house because there's so much traffic. <laughs> no, it's been everyone's really despite the traffic and everything it's been so fun to see so many families come out they bring their kids even just adults some people have come by dressed up 
they'll come take pictures. And we really didn't even cross our mind that the same people would respond to it and be so excited about it. And it's really fulfilling to see it. So, Well, President Barbie, Disco Ken, I appreciate your time. Yeah, thank, thank you. you. That was President Barbie and Disco Ken, known to the U.S. government as Liz Turan Gallegos and Justin Gallegos. They're residents of a real-world Barbie land, at least until Halloween. We reached them in Daybreak, Utah. By the end of this month, people in New Orleans could have salt water running from their taps. This year's drought conditions in the Midwest have led to extremely low water levels in the Mississippi River. That has left the usual freshwater current unable to push out the seawater coming in from the Gulf of Mexico. What's left behind is contaminated drinking water. So the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers has been shipping in millions of gallons of fresh water to water treatment intake sites. Herman DeMall Jr. is a fisherman who lives on the Mississippi River, about 120 kilometers downriver from New Orleans. We reached him in Venice, Louisiana. Herman, how long have you been without safe drinking water? Uh, about seven months now. Seven months. So you've been relying on bottled water then? Yes, ma'am. Bottled water, yeah. You know, we're, we're struggling. We don't have uh, tap water. I mean, we have tap water, but we can't use it. Uh, there's a lot of chemicals in it and uh, salt. Yeah. You've been trying to help out. How? I've been trying to help out just delivering water. Uh, the the, uh, the government's actually supplying water at two of the firehouses. Uh, so what I do is I go and uh, I pick up water. They, they gave me access to 30 cases per day to deliver to people who do not have a means to get water. Uh, a lot of elderly, uh, young moms uh, with babies. You know, this news is making headlines now. That's how we learned about mm-hmm. it. But you've been without right. safe drinking water, you said, for, for seven months. So how do you feel that people are, are just waking up to this now? Well, you know, it kind of it kind of hurts because, you know, here we are. We've been dealing with this issue for seven months, and, and it's the same issue we had last year, right? And eventually, I think it was three months after we were dealing with the saltwater last year, they actually brought in a, a saltwater, the, the uh, reverse osmosis system to filter out the saltwater. But this year, for some reason, I mean, it's seven months. The uh, the the equipment's on site, but it's not hooked up yet. Uh, so so we we haven't been getting any kind of recognition uh, nationally or locally until the threat was on Bell Chase in New Orleans. And then all of a sudden we started getting, you know, uh, recognition of local news and uh, reporters mm-hmm. and, and things like that. So, you know, and I understand that, that New Orleans is a, is a heavily populated place and it would affect more people. But, but, I mean, we're people too. And once it is working, that system, those, that machinery, how quickly will you get fresh, fresh water again? You get it pretty quick. They'll flush the lines out. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is what they did last year. They flushed the lines out, and then they send the good water through. And, you know, last year, I mean, the machine works really good. I mean, because once it was hooked up last year, they flushed, flushed the lines out, and we had good good water. I mean, the water was good. At the end of September, U.S. President Joe Biden did declare a state of emergency for Louisiana. Has that helped at all? No. 
you know, that that didn't speed up any process for us. I mean, New Orleans, I mean, they, they went in, I mean, full effect. I mean, they, they supposedly they have the issue, you know, if the issue does arise, they have everything in place. That's all they have to do is hook to the system and they'll be good. And, and here we are, you know, seven months later and still nothing, the result. The engineers are, are building that underwater sill, which will drill waters to drain the salt water. Uh, they're saying, officials are saying the combination of that sill, the reverse osmosis units when they're working, as you've said, and also maybe even rain in the forecast could prevent salt water from at least reaching New Orleans. Does that give you any comfort or are you still concerned in the long term? No, that doesn't give us any confidence now because what they're doing up north is not going to help us. We're still going to have, we're on the lower end of, of the the river, uh, so none of this is going to help us. Everything they're doing up north is going to help Belchase, going to help New Orleans, which is great, you know, that's, that's, that's good. But but what about us, you know? And, and, and you know, some of the things that they're, they're not talking about is, is the long term, right? Mm-hmm. Right now, you know, they put the reverse osmosis to address the short term, but what about the long term? You know, and look, I'm a I'm a fifth generation fisherman from here. I've been on the water since my mom started taking me. I was six months old, right? So I've been on the water my entire life, and I'm seeing things out there that I've never seen before. Places in the marsh where the cypress trees used to thrive, they're dead. They're not alive anymore. And this 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 didn't just start happening last year, because last year was the first time we had the saltwater issue. This is, I've been watching this happen in the marsh for years. It must be disturbing to see that happen, the place you work, the place you love. Yeah, yeah, it is. I mean, it's, it's, it's you know, it's heartbreaking for me to, to see what's happening in a community. Yeah, why do you think it's happening, all those things you described? Sounds like climate change is hitting you, you very close to home. No, the climate's always changing. I'm, I'm just, <laughs> the climate always changes here. But the reason why it's happening is because of storm surges that come in. And whenever it comes in, whenever the water recedes, it's taking marsh with it, right? And, and here's another issue we have here. And this is something that didn't just happen. This is something the Coles engineers have been doing for years. Because they've been punching holes in the levees and making these freshwater diversions. With the more holes you punch in a levee, the less flow you're going to have coming out of the mouth of the Mississippi River. This is another reason why we have having saltwater intrusion, because the, the, the government, the Corps of Engineers, won't leave stuff be. And look, instead of the Corps of Engineers coming in and sit down with guys who was born and raised down here, I mean, there's guys here that, that grew up in a body. You had to catch a boat to get to their house. They have uncles, my dad. Instead of them coming to sit down with them, but, but they look at us as just a bunch of uneducated people. But let me tell you, them guys, most of them are uneducated, but whenever it comes to the Mississippi River and the waterways here, there's nobody know it as good as them. Herman, maybe those officials or the engineers are, are listening to you now. We'll see if you get the answers and the help you need. Thank you for your time today, Herman. Yep, thank you. Herman DeMall, Jr. is a fifth-generation fisherman. We reached him in Venice, Louisiana. It's been more than a century since Suzanne Pred Bass's great-aunt Rosie 
jumped to her death from the ninth floor of the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory. It was a last-ditch effort to escape a raging fire. She was 19 years old. Her 17-year-old sister Katie barely escaped with her life. The New York City factory fire is still one of the worst industrial disasters in American history. 146 workers died, mostly young immigrant women who worked long hours making blouses for little pay. The outrage that resulted helped galvanize the U.S. labor movement. This week, family members of those who died that day were at the unveiling of a memorial at the site of the factory. Suzanne Predbass was there. We reached her in Manhattan. Suzanne, can you tell our listeners what the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory Memorial looks like? Wow. It's, uh, first of all, uh, I can say completely as an unbiased person that it is stunning and powerful. It has panels uh, starting on 12 feet above the sidewalk that have the names of all the victims etched in and cut out. So each letter is almost like an empty stencil. And then there's a panel below it that holds quotes. uh, And it's a reflective glass kind of Mm -hmm. effect. Uh, And it holds quotes from people who were actually there on the fire that day. And uh, the names of all the victims are reflected down on that lower panel. So what is it like to see your great-aunt Rosie's name reflected there? Well, I saw it for the first time this Wednesday, which Mm -hmm. was the day of the dedication ceremony. You know, it it moved me to tears. The the whole experience uh, was... uh, so intense, uh, and there were many family members there. So to watch us all uh, move slowly around this, uh, these panels and view them. There were also holders for carnations for 146, uh, which is the number of mostly young Italian and Jewish women who were killed in this fire. What did you learn? What did you hear when you were growing up, Suzanne, about what happened, what Katie survived, and how Rosie died? The interesting uh, piece of this story, and it's not uncommon, is that I learned about Katie, who really had an amazing escape story, uh, but nobody ever mentioned Rosie. Uh, I even met Katie. Uh, well, I knew Katie all through my childhood. She was a wonderful, feisty, mm-hmm. vibrant personality and married to a labor union president. So that fierce, uh, union-strong mentality uh, that really took off after the Triangle Factory fire was very strong in my family. But when I asked her to tell me the story from her lips, She never mentioned Rosie either. And at that point, when I was maybe 20, I still didn't know about Rosie. Uh, So, you know, these uh, losses were so devastating, so traumatic, so wounding that I think to touch them uh, became too painful. What kind of conditions were, were they working in even before the fire? Well, the interesting thing is, if you saw this building, it it, it almost was glamorous. It had an elevator. Uh, it had huge windows that looked out on the city. But it, it was a fire trap. 
they uh, the bosses blank and harris had never put in a sprinkler system that was available there there were a, a fire escape that actually fell off the wall with the bodies you know with the the young women and some men standing on it. It just broke away from the building. It was totally inadequate. The stairwells were so narrow uh, that it was hard to get out of them. Like I said, it was a nightmare. And, and the fire raged through that building in 18 minutes. It sounds horrific. And it, in one other detail, adds adds to how terrifying it must have been that, that their bosses locked the doors. The bosses locked the doors, and my Aunt Katie, who was 17 at the time of the fire and then went on to testify at the trial of Blank and Harris, she really it broke down in tears and went to a door to show how she had tried to open it, but it would not open. And, uh, you know, they were, they were trapped, trapped like animals. How did she get out? Well... She ran to the window and uh, to get some air, and then she realized, you know, she would have to jump and couldn't do that. She ran back to the elevator, and she saw that the elevator was coming up, but there were so many people pushing to get in that she could not get in. And then, you know, I you think without thinking, she grabbed the cable at the top of the elevator just before it started, you know, just as it started to go down and, you know, landed on people's heads, which was not pleasant for them, not pleasant for her, but she got out. I mean, she just, and she said that she knew that elevator wasn't coming back. Do you feel more at peace now? Do you think they could feel at peace with this, with this memorial? Uh, I have to say that I've actually had that thought. Uh, I'm not a woo-woo person. I'm not, you know, into any of that. But I thought, you know, I hope Rosie and Katie uh, have some peace. Uh, and and my grandmother and my uh, great-grandmother, their mother, I mean, mm-hmm. everybody. And my mother, who suffered enormously because of this. Suzanne, I appreciate your time. Thank you. Okay. Pleasure talking to you, Neil. We reached Suzanne Pred-Bass in Manhattan. been listening to the As It Happens podcast. Our show can be heard Monday to Friday on CBC Radio 1, following the world at 6. You can also listen to the show online at cbc.ca slash AIH or on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. I'm Neil Kirksal. And I'm Chris Howden. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.